Welcome to the Spectrum Lounge podcast, where we discuss creators of color disrupting the game in TV, film, and pop culture. I'm your host, Rebecca Theodore Vachon, and on this episode, we will be reviewing the season finale of Lovecraft Country titled Full Circle. Um, that episode is written, um, is directed by, sorry there, <laughs> um, Nelson McCormick and the writers for the season finale are Misha Green, Jonathan Kidd, Ihuma Ifordere, who was a former guest of ours, and Sonia Winton. So tonight we're going to, for this episode, we're going to be shaking it up a little bit. It's just me. <laughs> um, and so I uh, really want to talk about the season finale. Um, you know, Lovecraft Country um, premiered in August on HBO. Um, you know, the reviews for this show have been from negative to middling to, um, you know, really great reviews. Um, and it's basically on Sunday night, if you're on Black Twitter, that is like the one show that we've been live tweeting about. So I was able to um, screen the season finale about three days ago. So I watched it on Thursday and... I don't know. Um, I have to say, and I want to. I want to get this out of the way first. I am a fan of Lovecraft Country. Um, I think the premise is really interesting. I love the idea that we have black sci-fi. Um, that is, you know, Helm, the show writer, is Misha Green, a black woman. The writers' room is, you know, majority uh, black women and uh, men, and it's really from our point of view. And I think it's it's really exciting that. Um, we could have a show that could be that ambitious and that big budget, um, you know, given in the hands of, that is helmed in uh, by a black woman, um, because these are the kind of opportunities that we need. And so um, overall, I think for the season, I, I'll just start with my report card. Let's say that. So my overall thoughts of Lovecraft Country for season one, we're still waiting to hear if they're going to be renewed for season two. Fingers crossed. Um, I think it's a good show. I think it's a good show. I think some episodes are better than others. I think there's, there's some standouts. Um, episode seven, I am, which was written by Shannon Houston was just beautiful. Uh, the, it was basically the discovery or the journey of that Hippolyta takes to basically find her godhood and to, name herself. And I thought that was just a beautiful episode. Um, also episode eight, uh, Jigabobo, um, that centers on Diana, the, the daughter of, um, Hippolyta and George was one of the most terrifying episodes of this first season. Um, and I really loved the message, um, when we had Ihuma, the, who was the writer of episode eight, it's basically the idea of the, these jigabobos um, are basically symbolic of how we don't listen to little, how we don't listen to black girls, um, how they're gaslighted, how black girls and women are, are not believed, how they're gaslighted because D could only see those monstrous twins. Nobody else could say it. And what I, I didn't realize this the first time I saw this, uh, the spell that the police chief put on her, Lancaster, not only was she not on, not only was she the only person able to see these monstrous twins, the Jigabobos, anytime she tried to tell anybody, you would notice that she would start choking. So that was the second part of the show was to basically silence her. Um, and that was a really powerful episode. So seven and eight were basically bookends, I, I think. Um, Last week's episode, Rewind to 1921, um, took place in Tulsa, where they basically, because Dee was cursed um, and she was actually turning into a, a Jigabobo, Tick, Montrose, and Letty, um, with the assistance of Hippolyta, um, went back to that observatory and went back in time to get the Book of Names, because with the Book of Names, they would be able to reverse the spell on Diana. So this leads us into episode 10, which will either be the season finale or the series finale. Again, we're still waiting to hear uh, if the show will be renewed. 
I really struggled with this episode. Um, and there's there's a couple of reasons why. Um, just speaking from the writing point of view, I felt that the writing felt rushed. Um, I mean, it's like I said, it's a it's a big show. It's an ambitious show. And, you know, with the season finale of any series, um, whatever the genre, um, there's a lot of pressure because with the season finale, it's about sticking the landing. Right. You need to tie up the storylines that you've built. Right. Leading up to the season finale. And my just for me, I always feel like a really good season finale is when you bring closure to the existing storylines of that season and also open new doors to the next season. You basically want to engage your viewers to want to come back next season. Um, And usually with the season finale, there's usually a surprise, (laughs) something that may have been um, hinted during that season or just out of left field. And that kind of opens the door into the next season. That's usually interesting. Um, like last night, I over this past weekend, I I actually um, binged watched uh, Hellstrom, um, which is a Hulu original series, which is based on the Marvel uh, comic book character, uh, the, the Marvel comic book, and I felt I thought it was a good season, but like the season finale kind of did what I what I was talking about. It, it closed the existing storylines, and then there's a shocker. The last two minutes is like OMG, and then it kind of sets up you know, for season two, if, if, if Hellstrom gets renewed. So with Lovecraft, I'm going to, I'm going to, let me start with why I had issues with this season finale or just this episode in general. Um, and the two storylines that I particularly had issues with were the story arcs of Diana and Ruby. And I just want to say right now that there are major spoilers. So if you have not seen the season finale, um, episode 10 of Lovecraft Country, please turn this off, go watch it and come back and listen. But again, major spoilers um, because we really need to get in depth with this episode. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to start, I'm going to start with Ruby first. Um, Now Ruby was introduced to us in in episode one as Letty's half sister, right? Um, they all have the same mother. I think it's, uh, Letty, uh, Letty, Ruby, and they have, uh, older brother. Um, the older brother and Ruby are both darker skin. Letty is lighter skin. Um, they have same mother, different fathers. Um, and we don't really have that much backstory on their respective fathers. So my whole thing was once you introduce these two sisters, Letty being a very lighter skinned black woman. And we understand that Letty is the female lead, but you also introduce her sister, um, Ruby, who is played by Winmi Masako. And I think she is just excellent. She's just wonderful. And I really hope that people remember her performance um, come award season next year. Um, I feel that because colorism is something that is just so present. And it's something that we're still fighting in this industry, whether it's from black filmmakers and creators or non-black filmmakers and creatives, you really got to be careful when you have a lighter skin lead, when you have a lighter skin black woman lead, and then you have her counterpart who is darker skinned, right? Because the same care that you are going to give to that lighter skin black female lead, you're going to have to really pay attention to how the darker skin or browner skin black women in that show are treated as well. Now, let's be clear. With the introduction of Ruby and Letty, I know and I understand that the way Ruby walk the way that Ruby moves in the world and the way that Letty moves in the world are similar but different. Are they both black women? Absolutely. Are they both subject to racism and sexism and misogynoir? Absolutely. But we also have to acknowledge, and this is why it's, it's still a very frustrating conversation within the Black community. It's almost this, well, we're all Black and colorism doesn't exist, that light-skinned Black people, that light, lighter-skinned and biracial Black people have it you know, just as hard as darker-skinned people. Yes, but no. 
because we have studies that have actually shown that darker skinned black women get heavier um, incarceral rates. They go to jail. They get they uh, darker skinned black women get longer jail sentences. We are also seeing studies on the rates of lighter skinned black women getting married uh, compared to their darker skinned black women um, counterparts. And that also goes into and this is not just about desirability, but it's also about education. Um, career opportunities, all of these things tie into colorism, right? So therefore, if you are a show, particularly if you are a show helmed by a black person, these are all the things that need to be in your mind when you are writing for these characters. So I understood, at least for me, watching Lovecraft Country, I really gave the show some leeway and a benefit of the doubt because the things that happen to Ruby or the things that Ruby experiences um, tie in not only to her being darker skinned, but also being a full size plus size black woman. Um, and a perfect example of that was um, exemplified in episode five, A Strange Case, right? So this was the episode where Ruby um, has the potion where she turns herself into a white woman. And so in her white uh, counterpart Hillary Davenport, she gets the job at Marshall Fields. It's this prestigious uh, department store in Chicago. And Ruby had previously ap- applied there as herself, as a black woman, and and was continually rejected. Although we, it, she was very qualified. She was taking accounting classes, typing classes, and we know that you know Letty is just a very intelligent. Uh, I'm sorry, Ruby is a very intelligent person. She didn't get the job, but in episode five, when she goes into that. Um, when she goes into that interview as a white woman, and I'm guessing she probably used a similar or the same resume as uh, Ruby, uh, her white counterpart, Hillary, not only gets a job, she gets a job starting out as a manager. So she's not even on the floor as a sales girl. She's just a manager, right? And what was really interesting, and I thought this was really brilliant of the writers of this episode, is that there is a black girl that is hired as a salesperson, right? So you're watching this scene with uh, Ruby in her white cocoon, right? In her, in, as Hillary, asking this black girl, um, this young black woman, Tamara, how she got the job. And we understand, and through that episode, through that conversation, we understand that Tamara is actually not the most qualified person to get the job. Ruby was way more qualified than she was because she was asking um, Ruby was asking her, Ruby as Hillary was asking her, well, you know, did you take these accounting classes or these typing classes or whatever? And Tamara reveals the fact that she's never gone past a eighth grade education. And so you're watching the scene and you're kind of like, okay, well, so what's the difference here? Why was this black girl hired as the salesperson as opposed to Ruby who had applied several times? And then that's when you had to look at the optics, right? While Ruby and Tamara are both black women and they're both browner skinned, darker skinned. The difference being that Tamara one was thinner and she was younger. So I thought it was really fascinating that they kind of tuned into this, these subtleties, right? Um, that they were also, they were talking about ageism and sizeism. So on top of everything else that Ruby has to deal with, with being a black woman and being a plus size black woman and being a older, I I don't want to say middle age, but I'm guessing Ruby's probably like in her late twenties, early thirties, that things are just harder for her. Right. So with episode five, we understand you know, she kind of rebels at the end where she's like, I don't really want to be white because once she sees the dysfunctions and just the horror of these white people, she was like, I don't want to, you know, she embraces her blackness. She was like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be black. I just really want the access and the privilege that white women have. Um, so I was just kind of curious to see where this was going to lead with Ruby. Ruby was still, staying with Christina slash William, right? Even after she the revealed that William was really Christina, um, Ruby was still living there. She was still having a sexual relationship with William. Um, and so I guess for me, like I said, I was giving the show the benefit of the doubt because I was like, I really need a win for Ruby. Um, because I think for a lot of Black women viewers who watch Ruby, Ruby is someone that they... 
they see a lot of themselves in her. I see a lot of myself in her. Um, she's an avatar for a lot of us, browner skin, plus size, fat, whatever. You know what I mean? Where she's the, Masako, let me be clear. She is a beautiful woman. Um, the thing is with Hollywood, even with the beauty standards for black actresses, there's still a certain box that black actresses have to fit into. Their hair has to be straight. It has to be long. You can't be too dark. Um, I have a friend of mine um, who is a casting director and she's worked for shows like um, MTV and, you know, like other reality shows or whatever. And um, my, my casting director friend was saying that she would get notes, actual notes from producers and creatives who would say, Please find black. I want to. Bl- we want black actresses with white features. Yes, that was really said. <laughs> um, that being, you know, that means uh, straight hair, right? That means uh, no broad noses, no really full, thick lips, right? Like the 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 features have to conform to a Eurocentric standard of beauty, so to speak. Um, and Wumi Masako is is not really any of those things. She is still beautiful, but she is outside of that box. So I think for a lot of us Black women viewers, it was really like, oh, okay, we're seeing ourselves validated. Um, because one of the things that I loved about Ruby, that we love about Ruby, is that she is confident. She is, you know, sexual. Um, she is one of the baddest, best dressed women on prime time. Because you know, usually. Unfortunately for plus size or or fat women on primetime television or in movies, they don't really know how to dress us. Um, and clearly the costume designer in Lovecraft Country put a lot of love and care into the clothes that Ruby wore. And clothes are really a reflection of how we feel about ourselves. Um, so this is a woman who's really confident, even in, in spite of everything that was stacked against her. She was sort of like, I'm, I'm going to win. So I felt that the writers and the producers of the show needed to honor that, right? Um, I don't mind characters being flawed. I don't mind them being messies. I had issues with Ruby aligning herself with Christina because I was like, that's never going to end well. Um, (laughs) You know, as Black women aligning yourself with white feminism, uh, you don't win. You know, they, 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 they like you, they use you for your labor. And when you're of no use to them, they just toss you away. Right. So leading up to tonight's episode, I was really hoping that we were going to see a win for Ruby. And again, spoilers in tonight's episode, we understand that Ruby is killed by Christina because we know that Christina in order to create the transformation potions, um, she had William's body. William had been murdered months or years before. And then uh, the white woman uh, that uh, Ruby was taking on, that was, she was the caretaker, I believe, from episode two. Um, Letty had knocked her over the head with a shovel or something. And so Christina took her body. And so that's the blood of the person that was being used in order for Ruby to turn into a white woman. Um, so yeah, we see that Christina uh, pretends to be Ruby um, and basically infiltrates herself in the Freeman family in order to get this, you know, whole thing of the, the, the um, the uh, ritual of her becoming immortal or being invulnerable, right? So let me tell you why I have issues with this storyline. Number one, I I fucking hated it. Um, I felt Ruby deserved better. I believe that Wame Masako deserved better than that, especially with all the work that she had put in crafting this character. Um, Because what we understand is um, in in tonight's episode, they, part of the plan that, Atticus and all of them are having in order to thwart Christina, um, they're like, we need to make the spell. We need the spell and we need Christina's blood and hair or something like that in order to create the potion, you know, in order for us to do the spell in order to defeat her. Right. So we have a scene where Letty and Ruby are at their mother's grave. And so Letty in an earlier scene, you know, once they realized they needed the, you know, um, the blood and the hair from Christina, um, they realized that Ruby is 
the only person that could get close to Christina in order to procure these things. So at this gravesite of their mother, Letty asked Ruby, she was like, listen, this is what we need. This is what's going to happen. You know, Atticus is going to die if she does this, um, you know, ritual and I need your help. And Ruby rightly calls out Letty. She was like, you know what? I always notice that when you talk about family and you want um, whenever, you know, you want to be close to me or you want to be sisters, you want something from me. And she's absolutely right. And Ruby had been saying Ruby has been saying this throughout the show that Letty is a very selfish person. And again, I don't have a problem with characters being flawed because I think that's Letty's flawed. She's very self-centered and she looks out for number one. Right. Or you know, the ones that she loves, like Atticus, right? Okay. Um, so she basically asked, so Letty asked Ruby, um, listen, I need you to get this blood and hair from Christina for me because we need this for a spell. Ruby calls her out. Letty basically guilts her. She was like, listen, there's a lot of stuff we don't that you don't know about Christina. X, Y, Z, right? Okay. So the next scene we see Ruby uh, back at Christina's house and Christina is basically showing Ruby um, the incantations, like all of this stuff, like just opening the book and just showing her like, these are how you do it. You have to have, I think it's intent, um, a location and a body, right? Those are the three things that you need to cast a spell or whatever. And then this show kind of, and then this, the, the, this scene kind of jumps a shark because like I said, and I've said this in previous um, podcasts, to me, the um, relationship that Ruby has, even though we know that William and Christina are basically the same person, the interaction between Ruby and William and Ruby and Christina are markedly different. Uh, the interaction between Ruby and William, William is gentler. He's softer with her. He's more intimate with her. Whereas the scenes of Ruby and Christina are very adversarial. It's very black woman versus white woman. Right. Um, and even after the reveal of Christina being William, it still continues when you watch further episodes. So all of a sudden we're seeing Christina and Ruby kissing. And I was just like, OK, <laughs> that that's a choice <laughs> um, because, you know, the, the there's a question of Christina's sexuality, you know, which is compounded by the magic of her being able to turn into a man, which, you know, you can interpret in any different way. But up until epi- up, up until this episode, Christina and Ruby had never, ever been intimate. So I'm very thrown as to why this was. I think part of it was I'm sure Ruby was trying to seduce her in order to get it. I don't know. I'm not sure, but it just, it just seemed very weird. And it just seemed very out of character for Christina. And to be honest with you throughout this tonight's episode, there were a lot of things that it felt like jumping the shark and out of character for a lot of people, but I digress. Um, anyway, towards the end of the episode, uh, when the, when the Freemans are making that road trip back to Artem to try to stop Christina, Ruby shows up with the potion and, you know, she and Letty hug. They have this beautiful sister moment, whatever. They get to Artem. All of them, you know, break up into groups, you know, doing whatever they need to do. And so Letty and Ruby are up in this tower, um, you know, painting these incantations and these symbols. And the reveal, it is revealed that that Ruby that is on the trip with them is not Ruby. It is actually Christina. And so Christina and Letty get into a huge fight and she throws Letty down a chute. Like Letty just is basically dead. There's no way you could survive that fall. Um, that scene broke me. And I was just really, really, really disappointed with the writers and with this show. And I was just like, after everything that we have watched and invested and and rooted for Ruby, like this is the way that she ended up. Like she's just a sack of meat somewhere in a freaking basement, like comatose. Like, I don't know if she's comatose. I don't know if she's dead, but I just felt like this wasn't it, guys. (laughs) This was not it. I'm not sure how people are going to react to this. Um, 
again, you know, some people might be like, well, you never know. She might come back for the second season. She might not really be dead. I don't know. I do know that there was a scene where, you know, when Jiha uses her tentacles to um, basically connect uh, Christina and Tick, we saw flashes of Christina's memories. We see Ruby. We see Christina confronting her. And then we see Ruby comatose under the covers, pretty much like the other people down there. So I can only judge what I've seen. I don't know what's going to happen in season two. I don't know what that, I have no idea. I have not read the book. I'm only judging. I'm only critiquing what I saw. <laughs> and what I saw tonight was not cool. Um, and again, this goes back to how we treat our darker skinned black female characters. Okay. And it is irritating to me because Again, this is nothing against Journey Smollett. I'm just talking about the character here, okay? I'm talking about the fact that you had this lighter-skinned Black female lead, and then you introduce her darker-skinned Black sister. You needed to be careful of the trajectory of both of their storylines. Like I said, their paths were different, but Ruby needed to win. She needed to not be dead. And this brings up a question of black femininity on this show and how we perceive black femininity and who we feel is deserving of our protection and our love and who does not. And I can say from the 10 episodes that I've seen of Lovecraft Country, Dark-skinned black women ain't exactly winning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I said, episode eight with D, you know, basically she's just abandoned by the elders and by the adults in her life. Um, you know, and like I said, that specific story was to bring a point, right? Of how we neglect and we don't take care, even, you know, with within the black community, we don't care for our black little girls the way that we should. Um, but with Ruby, going back to Ruby, the thing is, who was taking care of Ruby? Who looks out for Ruby, right? I, I did a podcast, uh, this was concerning episode five, and Joelle Monique, um, I had done a, a roundtable with other black female critics, and it was an excellent point that Joelle Monique had brought up. She was like, and we were at episode five. She was like, you'll notice nobody's there for Ruby. Nobody has her back. She is always doing that labor herself. And when you look at Letty, while yes, she is a heroine. Yes, she's a badass. She can swing a bat. It is very clear that when Letty goes on these adventures and when Letty puts herself in danger, she has backup, whether it's Atticus, whether it's Montrose, whether it's George, there is a certain protection around Letty that Ruby does not have and never had, right? Because even in her relationship with William, it was still transactional, right? There was nothing really, there was no love in there, right? It was like, I'll do something for you, you do something for me. And Ruby had called Christina and William out on that a couple of times. But it's like, when do black, dark-skinned black women who look like Ruby have protection? Nobody was throwing themselves trying to protect her. Anytime we see Letty in danger, somebody, while I, she's a very independent character, but like I said, she's got backup, right? And even in episode nine, when she had to go and get the book of names by herself, she was still protected by the invulnerability spell, okay? And just... Let's just keep a scorecard of, of Letty here, right? Um, after, as of this whole season, she's died twice. She's come back from the, de from the dead twice. Also had an invulnerability spell, right? Like we literally saw bullets, you know, like bouncing off of her, right? What was that? Episode nine or episode eight? I forget which one. Um, no, that was episode eight. And like, what did Ruby have? All that Ruby had was like this janky freaking potion that turns her into a white woman. Like if she was so close to William and Christina, how come Ruby did not have access? How come William and Christina never gave Ruby that invulnerability spell? 
why did she give it to Letty? Right? Because even like it just did, like for me, I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, there's a lot of light skinned <laughs> privilege going on with Letty here. And we need to talk about that. Like we like we need to talk about that. And we need to talk about the fact that Ruby just never had that protection. Literally, magic wise, nothing. She is the one on her own. Diana, we saw the same thing with Diana, her being on her own, having to fight off these monsters. Yes, in episode nine, you know, people, um, you know, Letty, Tick and Montrose went back in time to help her. And, you know, thank God Hippolyta was there because she was like, y'all are going to go save my daughter. Right. Um, so I just I just felt hurt that. And I'm let's I'm just just go assuming that Ruby is dead. It hurt me that she left this earth. Never having that love and that protection. It's wrong. It's wrong. And I think as as black filmmakers and as black creatives, we are the ones because the thing is, this is not a documentary, right? Like this is not like a Breonna Taylor documentary. This is a show that is fictional. It is it is magical. It is run and it is directed and it is written by black women. So we always have a choice when it comes to our darker skinned black female characters, when it comes to fictional genres we always have a choice of how we choose to love them and protect them and i don't feel that ruby was loved and protected and what happens is that when darker skinned black women and darker skinned black fat women and darker skinned uh plus size black women see that that is what you are telling them you as the creators you are basically saying that we don't give a fuck about you we'll use your representation we'll use um, your representation to further the storylines of lighter skinned black women and more desirable, you know, what society sees that like Ruby was basically a, a work mule. And I think what really pisses me off about this is like Letty. Again, like I said, she's she is very selfish and she can be very self-centered. Um, you put your sister in danger. Why would you do that? Right. Like you, you sent this woman, of course, yes, it's her choice or whatever. But I mean, let's face it with family. We know how to manipulate our siblings. Right. We know how to press their buttons and get them to do things. Right. And my question to Letty is, why would you put your sister in danger like that? You know how dangerous Christina is. You know, she has all this power. You know, she's invulnerable. And you at the very least, if you were going to send Ruby to do that, why couldn't you have hooked her up with a freaking spell from like the book of names? Why were you like, why could, why could you and, and Atticus and Montrose not be outside Christina and Williams ma mansion to check on her and, and, and make sure that the plan went well. You just told her, you just gave her an edict. You were like, listen, I need blood in here from her and I don't care how you get it, but we need it. So it's like even the lack of care and protection comes from her own sister. And, and I think that's something as viewers, we really need to interrogate this. I know it's hard sometimes when we love shows, we want to, you know, we want to promote and we want to endorse black content because we don't, because our representation is so rare. There's such a dearth of it. And so we become protective of certain TV shows and certain movies or whatever. But I think it is our job also because we are the viewers that consume this content, right? Lovecraft Country for all, everything that they're doing and all the money and the time. And, and I acknowledge that, that they are putting time and sweat and, and equity into this project. But ultimately we are, as the viewers, we are the consumers, we get to decide what is okay and what is not. You can tell your story as a, as a storyteller, right? You have the First Amendment right. You can write whatever you want. You can put whatever image you want as a filmmaker, as a creative. But also remember, once you put that art into the world, whatever intent or whatever ideas that you had, it's no, it's no longer in your hands. It is in the hands of the viewers and they have to decide. There are some people who may watch the episode tonight and listen to what I say and be like, I don't, I don't see what you're talking about. There's no colorism or whatever, but, um, I'm going to say, <laughs> and this is my opinion. I feel that there was a lack of care put into Ruby. And so extending into Diana, I was already pissed about Ruby. The, the D storyline bothered me and troubled me 
in similar but in different ways. And I'm going to tell you why. So like I said, with episode eight, we had the Jigabobo episode, right? And like I said, I thought it was brilliant because it really spoke to this, um, this, this, this problem that we have in our communities and our home is that we don't take care of our black daughters the way that we should. Right. And we gaslight them and we, and we, we make them think that there's nothing wrong or what are you talking about or whatever. Um, the problem with D at least in episode 10 or this episode tonight is that they do get the book of names. They do lift the curse off of her, but her arm, one of her arms is basically still rotted or decrepit. So they heal most of her, but not all of her. So there's one arm or whatever, which is actually cool because then that leads to having a disabled character, which I think disabled representation is important. Although the actress herself is not disabled. Um, the thing is D is supposed to be representative and and this was established throughout the show and especially in episode eight is that D is basically representative of our innocence of black girls innocence and we know that black girls are adultified they're sexualized at a much younger age right you have little girls that are they're you know little black girls that are 10 um and because maybe because of their ways their bodies develop or whatever or just the fact of them being browner skin or darker skin we just project onto them we don't let them be we don't let we don't allow them to be innocent we don't allow them to enjoy their childhood right so after the trauma that d had suffered in episode 8 and 9 and now that hippolyta is back I, I, I thought the scene where D confronted her mother and was like, you left me and you and you weren't there to protect me. That scene was necessary. That was a conversation that absolutely needed to be had with D and Hippolyta um, because Hi- Hippolyta needed to answer for that. I understand that she had her own thing that she had to take care of, you know, and finding herself. But you left your daughter alone and all these horrible things happened to her. So that scene was necessary. Now, the rest. <laughs> The rest of the arc with Diana, they take Diana on this trip to go back to Artem. Number one, I don't really know why you would take this girl, and again, little girl, um, why you would take this little girl to someplace so dangerous um, because you knew there was a chance that you probably couldn't come back. I don't know. Um, At the end of the episode, we find out that Atticus had basically bequeathed his um, Shoggoth um, or his beastie to Diana. So now the beastie is basically Diana's um, guardian. I didn't have a problem with that. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, the problem that I had, and again, spoilers, um, they defeat Christina um, from you know having this immortality spell. And then Christina um, is basically buried under all of this rock. Like she's just under like rubble and can't move. Um, and you see the Shoggoth, you see um, Atticus's uh, black Shoggoth, and then you see Diana come out of the shadows and uh, Diana reveals that she has like the cybernetic arm. I'm assuming that Hippolyta gave it to her, you know, one of her travels or whatever, because it looks, you know, new age or or very techie or or futuristic. Um, And they have Diana kill... Christina. She wraps her cybernetic arm around her neck and basically just crushes, crushes her neck. Just I didn't like this. I did not like this storyline at all. And I, I feel like that's it's irresponsible in some ways because again, if Diana is the avatar for innocence, for black girl innocence. I felt that Hippolyta being back, that should have been your number one priority as a parent. Like this trauma has happened to my daughter and I need to take care of her. And I need, I I need to, I, I felt like for Hippolyta, she needed to be focusing on helping Diana find her innocence again and helping her find her inner joy again. Right? So the cybernetic arm, that's that's fine. I guess in my head, 
I felt like, you know, when Hippolyta had taken D and she was like, I want to show you something after their argument. Um, I was hoping that it would be something like Hippolyta bringing something back from the future, like a Mac computer. I'm, I'm not really a, you know, a, um, graphic, you know, any of those, um, computers with graphic design or whatever. And, you know, having someone in now that Diana is someone that has one arm, there's a lot of programs and and computer applications where even if you're someone who only has one arm, you can still draw. Right. And, and that was the thing that brought Diana joy. That is what brought D joy in her life was the writing of these comic books and creating these fantastical worlds or whatever. Um, I mean, like I said, D did not even need to be on that that trip. Me personally, I since Hippolyta has the power of going, you know, to the future or whatever, I would have thought she would have like sent her over to where George is or something. Like you could have put her in a pocket of an alternate reality and be like, I'll come back and get you <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Or but just or not even taking her on the trip, but really just bringing her something where it's like this is the thing that made you happy. This is the thing that makes you special. So let's focus on that. So let's let's see how we can get you back drawing again, right? And again, if you brought some sort of futuristic applications or whatever, that could have that could have been something that Diana could have done because I also feel that Diana is not only the avatar of Black Girl Innocence, um she is also the avatar at least the way I look at Diana because of her talent and her skill, she is I thought she was on the track to be basically the storyteller and the griot of this story, right? Um, because she has the power of images and words, she can be the keeper of the legacy of the Freemans, right? Like we know that Atticus's son is going to write a book, Lovecraft Country. Okay, great. But Diana is here now <laughs> in 1955. And so I just, I don't know. I like, I just really had a problem just really watching this black girl murder someone. And, and I'm going to tell you why. And again, like I said, with my, with, with Lovecraft country, black female rage is something that is absolutely acknowledged. And I agree with it. And I think that's something that should be talked about, but I felt like that's something for the grown black women that need to do. Like we, we, we can't be putting these things on our black children. Like I've had this conversation with my sister and you know, we saw these pictures of the Black Lives Matter protests or whatever. And there was one image of this one march. And in the first row, it was these little black kids. It was like little black girls, like seven, eight, nine, ten. And, you know, people were we share, were sharing these posts, were sharing these pictures on Instagram and Twitter. And they're like, yeah, teach these kids early and everything. And I'm like, but why? But like life is already hard enough being black. Like there's so much waiting for them on the other side. And again, it's like, why can we not create these safe spaces for black children? I don't, I don't want my five-year-old child to be like a, like a militant Malcolm X. No, (laughs) that's not like, that's for the adults. I feel like for black teens and adults, like that's the fight we should be fighting while we protect these children and try to keep, try to help them maintain their innocence and their childhood for as long as possible. So this image of this black girl now becoming like this homicidal person. And now she has like the Shoggoth. It's just, I don't know. Like, I guess they want to talk about the loss of black female innocence, but, but again, this goes back to the fact of, we are the ones that write these stories with with black women creators and we can fashion, right? Because that was the whole point of, of episode seven, right? Is the fact that we can name ourselves and we could create anything that we want. So with the D character, you could have done anything else with her except that. And also I felt that Christine being killed, that was something that should have been for Ruby. That is how this, at least for me in my storyline, Dee and Christina really didn't even have that much interaction with each other. The direct interaction was between Ruby, William slash Christina. So her being murdered by, um, you know, her being murdered by um, Ruby would have made more sense to me. It just didn't really make sense. And I just, the imagery is just, is a no. 
<laughs> it's a no for me. And I was just like, um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, overall, the episode to me was just, it was, it was kind of, the writing was kind of rushed. Like I said, it felt like they were trying, like, it was like, okay, we have to close up all these storylines and then, you know, let's throw in this surprise of, you know, Tick doing X, Y, Z or whatever. And it just, I just felt like it could have, they, it could have been done better. Like there could have been different creative choices made that would have still had a similar emotional impact. Um, But again, we really need to examine the way that we treat darker skinned black women in our fictional genres, especially in the hands of black creatives, right? Now, I'm sure there are people that will be like, well, look at Hippolyta and look at all the great, yes, you're right, right, you're right. Episode seven was beautiful. But again, this goes back to the fact of Hippolyta having to make that journey for herself, right? And again, if you look at which of the black women on the show get a certain protection and get a certain type of, uh, yeah, protection. I'll, I'll use the word protection. And which of the black women on the show don't? The ones that have to be their own heroes, that have to show up for themselves because other people are not going to show up for themselves, right? And so that can be a truth because we know that truth. We know that it, it happens in the black community, but we can we can we can change it. We can change the narrative. We can change how we can see ourselves, right? And I just, it's just unfortunate that we fell, that the show fell back on these tropes. And I think in Black content, this is something that really, we really need to fight against this. We need to be actively aware of these. And I don't want to use blind spots because that's very ableist. I think there are certain things, even as Black creatives, we can be ignorant of, and we may not, we may have, we have a lack of sensitivity towards, and we need to pinpoint that, right? Another example that I would, sh- I would use in, as far as black content is P Valley, right? P Valley um, is from Katori Hall. Um, it's about a, a strip club, I believe in Mississippi, right? And so the main, the, the main protagonist, again, is a very lighter skinned black woman, right? And the other lead is played by Brandy Evans. She is a darker skinned, browner skinned, stripper, right? Uh, or or pole dancer. Let me call them pole dancers. Um, and the thing is, the browner skin woman in P Valley, when we meet her, she's someone, she is like the best. She's the baddest. She's like the best dancer. And she was like, I'm about to get the hell out of here. I'm stacking my papers. I'm getting the hell out of here. And because her dream is to open up a, uh, a dance studio, right? Because she basically is a, a coach to this, this dance troupe. Um, so this is how we meet her in episode one. By the time P Valley ends at the end of season one, who do you think is the one on top between between the lighter skin character and the darker skin black woman character? Who do you think is the winner and who do you think is the loser? I don't need to tell you. We've seen this time and time again. So I feel like with black creatives, we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention on how we treat darker skin and browner skin black women because guess what we are the ones that give you the ratings we are the ones that support your shows that tweet and so i feel like at the very least like i understand as a, as a story writer you have to serve the story but at the same time you have to break out of certain tropes and certain stereotypes because images are very very powerful you know this there's and it, you would know this because this is the reason why you go into filmmaking and this is why you go into screenwriting and directing because you understand the power of storytelling, right? And so, not to sound cliched, right? What is it? With great power comes great responsibility. I'm not saying you need to make politically correct, sanitized content, but what I am saying is that you you need to have a certain consciousness of when you put these images out there and people people ingest these images and how they internalize these images. What does it say about them? Um, yeah. So that's pretty much my thoughts on Lovecraft country. Um, all to say, like I said, you know, I, I think it's a good show. I think for, you know, if they do get a season two, 
hopefully, I don't know if they're going to listen to this podcast, but I'm just going to say, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking these things. I'm sure other people will be live tweeting and sharing their opinions too. I hope that they will be open-minded to course correct some of these things that if you're going to continue to have darker skinned black women on Lovecraft country to be a little bit more loving and protective of them. Um, because that's why we that's why we go and watch ourselves on screen. That's why we watch ourselves on television. That's why we watch ourselves on late on on film. Is because the real world doesn't give us that love. They don't give us that protection. And so maybe for 60, 30, 30 minutes or 60 minutes or two hours, whatever it is, I can escape into a world where I feel loved and I feel protected. Right. And and when you reflect that love and protection, it gives the people the message that we should love and protect darker skinned black women and do better to them. Because if, if if you as a content creator are not doing better, right? Because art is a reflection of society, right? But how do we change that? How do we shift that? We shift that through imagery. We shift that through storytelling. And if you don't want to accept that power <laughs> and just fall into the tropes, then what are you really doing? So, um, you know, that is my challenge to the you know, showrunner and the the writers and the creative team. I hope you guys come back for for season two. I do like the show, um, but I I would hope that you know I don't know if they're planning to bring Ruby back for season two because it could be that she might just be in a coma. She may not really be dead. I don't know. But if you do bring back Winmi Masako, which I think you should, um, I hope these are the things that will be in mind when you write for Ruby for season two. I would really love to see her find love. I would love to see her find, whether it's self-love and peace or it doesn't have to be a romantic love. I would just love to see her protected. And I would see like to see her love. And I would love to see Letty actually treat her sister better. Um, so those are my thoughts <laughs> for episode 10. I'm on Twitter. If you can find me on Twitter, it's at filmfatale underscore NYC. Um, I won't be live tweeting, but I would love to hear your thoughts when you finish watching um, the season finale of Lovecraft Country. And that's it. I'll see you guys on the other side. Bye.